both Ben and Jerry appear to believe in the concept of the noble savage. Mr. Reagan. For decades, the leftists have had this annoying rallying cry. They say, this land belongs to the indigenous First Nations peoples. The white man stole it. And now, Ben and Jerry, the hippies responsible for the famous diabetes-inducing ice cream brand, they declared on this last 4th of July, they've declared, this 4th of July, it's high time we recognize that the U.S. exists on stolen indigenous land and we commit to returning it. Learn more and take action now. Now, uh, you guys probably saw this in the news. There was a massive backlash to it. A lot of people have called this, this tweet, Ben and Jerry's Bud Light moment. I actually wrote uh, under their tweet, I wrote, uh, I would absolutely love to see Ben and Jerry's go bankrupt. Their ice cream sucks anyway. And my response got 8,000 likes and several other critical responses did similar numbers. And the original tweet was ratioed into oblivion. But Ben and Jerry's did not stop there. They devoted a section of their website to raise awareness for this insane proposition of theirs. The webpage specifically calls for the return of Mount Rushmore and the Black Hills to the Lakota Indian tribe. And they've got links there to support a petition for this purpose. Of course, this will never happen. And so it's very obviously an impotent virtue signal. Now, something very funny happened after they posted all of this. The chief of the Kusuk Abenaki Nation, I can't pronounce the Indian stuff, uh, revealed that Ben and Jerry's corporate headquarters in Vermont is actually built on Native American land. The ice cream makers declared the United States was founded on stolen indigenous land. Our next guest says Ben and Jerry should be the first to give up their headquarters on his tribe's land. Chief of the Nalhegan Band of the Kusak Abenaki Nation, Don Stevens, joins us now. Chief Stevens, thank you very much for being here. So first off, just to get the facts straight, you can confirm that your tribe previously uh, had been in control of the land where Ben & Jerry's has its headquarters today. Yes, Vermont is part of the Western Abenaki Territories, and there are four state-recognized tribes located in Vermont right now. So. It is, um, it is the home of all four of our, our, our nations. Have they made any statements in the past? Have you had any communication with them that they acknowledge this and based on their public stance, think they should do something about it? I have not been in direct communication with Ben and Jerry's, but I'm always open to uh, any sort of correspondence or communication to figure out um, the purpose behind the tweet and how we could work together to uplift our community. I love the hypocrisy that this guy points out with Ben and Jerry's here. It's always this way with the left. I have always proposed that the Republicans should pay taxes only for Republican supported policies, subsidies, welfare programs, all that stuff. And Democrats should all pay for their policies, subsidies, welfare programs, and all that stuff. Democrat politicians are always super generous with other people's money. And it would be very interesting to see how generous they are when they're forced to only pull from the pocketbooks of their voters. Something tells me that there would be a lot of people switching over to the Republican Party. And something also tells me that Democrat generosity would dry up real quick, but I digress. Well, things haven't been so sweet for Ben and Jerry's after the company posted an anti-American tweet, a few of them, on the 4th of July. 
causing their parent company, Unilever, to lose nearly $2 billion in market cap in just a few days. So Ben & Jerry's has now lost their parent company $2 billion in value because of the inevitable boycott. So how did Ben and Jerry fall into this PR, PR nightmare? Well, of course, being leftist stooges and virtue signaling, you know, this sort of thing is bound to happen. But where did this idea about giving land back to the Indians originate? Why is it so popular with leftists who obviously enjoy the benefits of the capitalist empire that we've developed on this land over the past 300 years? And why is this seemingly altruistic idea so totally wrong? Well, the answer to the first question is that Ben and Jerry fell for one of the major myths of history, a myth that originated in the year 1580, the myth of the noble savage. Now, I'll answer the second question. I'll explain this fascinating and laughably absurd fantasy of the noble savage in one moment. First, I have to sell you something. The US dollar has lost 85% of its value since the 1970s when the dollar decoupled from gold. And the government seems bent on continuing this tradition. From now until the next election, the government can print as much money as they want. The last time they did that, inflation went up 9%. This means one thing, the security of your future and your family's future, it's all in your hands. Make sure you freeze the value of the wealth that you are holding. Invest in gold with Noble Gold Investments. Gold is the one asset that has proven to withstand recession, inflation, and just about all economic threats. Noble Gold Investments is here to help you if you want to invest in gold. You will also get a 24 karat 1 4th ounce gold standard coin for free. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com right now, noblegoldinvestments.com, or simply call 1-877-646-5347, the only gold company that I trust. In the 1960s, there was this push for a lot of historical revisionism, especially about the Native Americans, the Indians. Basically, leftist university professors thought it was fun to subvert expectations like Ryan Johnson. Up until that point, American schools taught accurately that Christian European explorers, pilgrims, pioneers, and colonists were amazing people. They were tough and they suffered great challenges, but they overcame these challenges and they helped to expand and further develop Western civilization, the greatest civilization in history. But then these 1960s subversive university professor degenerates came along and they said, hey, instead of pre presenting white European Christians as the heroes of history, let's present them as the villains. That'll be fun, right, guys? The most famous and the most influential example of this is Howard Zinn's history textbook, a People's History of the United States of America and all. And I'll get into why this is so absurd in a moment. First, let me just say that, yeah, you know what? This thing is actually kind of fun. Flipping the script, making the hero the villain, the villain the hero, that's fun. And it becomes a popular trend sometimes. On the show, How I Met Your Mother, the character of Barney proposed the idea that the villain of the film Karate Kid Johnny was actually the hero, and the hero, daniel son was actually the villain. But as fun as this is to do with fiction, doing this with actual history is kind of dangerous because when you present the villains as the heroes and the heroes as the villains, generations grow up taking the wrong lessons from history. Imagine if elementary school teachers all decided that it would be fun to start teaching children that the Germans in the 1930s were actually just misunderstood heroes. The lessons that they would take from that teaching might not bode particularly well for the future of this country. Actually, I don't know. It may be that the Democrats in D.C. and the FBI were taught that way. Sometimes it does seem like that, right? The way they go after the Trump supporters, stuff like that. Anyway, you get my point. Flipping the script on a fiction can be fun. Flipping the script on history, well, that can actually be very dangerous. And that's what happened in the universities in the 60s and their perspective on Christian Europeans. 
and the consequences have, as I mentioned before, have been disastrous. We now have several generations from Gen Xers on down who actually believe that Christian Europeans were the bad guys of history. But this, this is just wrong. Historically, white European Christians actually cut against the grain of conventional violent practices of most conquerors and colonists throughout the world. These white Christian Europeans did not just genocide the peoples that they conquered. And yes, that was a practice among many cultures throughout the world, throughout history. You want this other tribe's land? You want their wealth? You want their women? Most cultures would just come in and slaughter everyone or they'd enslave a bunch of people. And this depended, of course, on you know the need they might have for slaves. But in any case, most people, most cultures throughout the history of the world have been horribly vicious and violent. White Europeans were amazing. Now, of course, this is a nuanced, nuanced reality. Great empires throughout history would have treated conquered peoples that they subjugated with varying degrees of kindness. And certainly, many Christian European cultures subjugated and enslaved various native populations. But Christianity inspired many Christian European missionaries to, instead of subjugating or enslaving, rather to try to civilize primitive peoples. This was a kind of a new way of treating conquered peoples. Now, I know that, that Romans did this quite a bit in, throughout the rest of Europe, but at the time, this was kind of a novel thing, I believe. Instead of killing you, we will teach you how to not be savages. And the, the native populations here in North America were absolutely savages. And I've talked about this before on, on the channel, but I'm going to get into that get into it a little bit here too, because it perpetually annoys me, this myth of the noble savage. So as I said, the myth of the noble savage began in 1580 with the publication of an essay called Of Cannibals. Yes, the original noble savage or nature's gentleman, as it was originally presented, was a discussion about native populations being cannibals. Not sure how, that there's anything noble or gentlemanly about that, but uh, you know that's what the guy believed. And let me explain. So in this essay, this French philosopher, Michael de Montaigne, he was writing, he was writing about actual cannibals, the Tupanamba people of Brazil. Why is it that there are so many terrible philosophies that came from the French? I mean, a few pretty bad ones came from the Germans as well. So my own people are certainly not entirely innocent in that respect. But anyway, I digress. Montaigne was the first to propose that the horrifying culture of violent savagery typical with primitive peoples was not actually bad, but rather he praised these cultures as being honest, right? As being like more honest and more strong than the European cultures of the time. They, he thought they were honest because primitive cultures had not developed sophisticated social practices that, you know, facilitated the, you know, things like pretension and artifice. In the more civilized European culture, one probably would not brutally murder somebody just because they disagreed with them. But in a primitive culture, this might happen. And so to this Montaigne guy, this indulgence in, you know, of this primitive, this violent impulse, this was a more honest expression of one's feelings than the self-control of the civilized European. This is, of course, insane. You know, a civilization in which the average citizen need not fear being killed at random by an impulsive neighbor is obviously superior to one in which that fear actually does exist. But that's not what this guy thought. This guy was like, everybody should be violent because that's more honest. So this guy was just like looking at the native 
populations with this alternate perspective, right? Well, let's let's like try to think of them as the good guys, right? And this is kind of the start of historical revisionism. This is like he was kind of like the first one to do this. And look, historical revisionism has always been mired in controversy. It became very popular in World War One to reevaluate what had had happened that led up to the war, the Great War, as they called it. And there were people who, from the start, believed that reevaluating the things that led up to that war was unnecessary and it was prone to bias from an academic perspective. But revisionism was eventually accepted as a positive by many academics. The view was that, you know, through the process of revising our perceptions of history, historians are actually taking a very careful look at historical periods, events, and figures and adding context, more information and greater nuance and understanding about these things. However, those early critics, I believe, had very valid concerns. Sometimes conventional understanding is actually pretty darn accurate, and it doesn't need to be revised. And some historians are actually radically biased, and so their revisionism actually distorts our perspective and makes our understanding of history less accurate. In fact, I tend to believe that historical revisionism is more often a bad thing than a good thing. And this is because of the attention that historical revisionism can bring to a historian and the temptation for fraud that this attention manifests. You see, an attention-seeking historian may be tempted to create an impact by challenging conventional wisdom. That is, they might want to get people's attention by saying, everything you think you know is wrong. This kind of thing tends to have a massive impact. But the problem is, that when you seek to make news in this way, there's always a temptation to lie or to distort or maybe just to take a little thing in history and blow it up into a much bigger deal than it, than it actually was and thereby distracting people from the major stuff that they should be paying attention to. An example of a straight-up revisionist lie is the mass graves of over 4,000 Indian schoolchildren who are claimed to have been killed in boarding schools in Canada due to, quote, abuse and neglect and infectious disease. This is a story that became international news and Justin Trudeau has addressed it several times and issued groveling apologies for it. I want to talk about the heartbreaking news that 215 children were found buried at the former Kamloops residential school. 215 children. Think of their loving families that they were ripped away from. Think of the communities that never saw them again. Think of their hopes, their dreams, their potential, of all they would have accomplished, all they would have become. All of that was taken away. Well, that entire story was a massive lie. There are no mass graves, and 4,000 schoolchildren did not die in public schools in Canada due to abuse or neglect. The truth was that there was a tuberculosis epidemic at that time, which many children died from, the Indians were particularly sensitive to this disease, but a lot of white people died from tuberculosis at that same time. In, in 1815, 25% of all deaths in England were from tuberculosis. And 100 years later, in 1918, one in every six deaths in France was due to tuberculosis. Tuberculosis was a very deadly disease into the development of antibiotics. And the disease was rampant in Canada in general in the 1930s. Not just these Indian boarding schools, but everywhere. So no, it was not neglect or abuse or starvation that these children died of. It was an epidemic of tuberculosis. But this ridiculous story that it was the white people that basically genocided these Indian kids because they were, you know, because white people are evil. This story, of course, went viral, if you'll pardon the pun. And now I looked into the accusations of racially motivated abuse and neglect and starvation. I looked at the earliest claims I could find and all of the research 
every one of these accusations is entirely speculative. That is, they were made up by people who just want attention. The reality is that the people who were running these schools were not neglectful or abusive. They were good Christians trying to help and care for these children. But a lot of people, they really hate Christianity and they really hate traditional white European culture and white European cultural values. And they will jump at any opportunity to try to defame Western civilization, even going so far as to blatantly lie, as in the case here. But a lot of gullible people will believe such lies, and some people even want to believe such lies. And because of this, activists, this is, this is really messed up. I, I actually hate reporting about this. I hate talking about it because it so disgusts me. Because of this ridiculous lie, activists, leftist lunatics in Canada, burned down churches all over the country. They burned down churches in Canada. No joke. They burned down churches because of this lie. Now, the truth about this whole story was exposed brilliantly by the reporting of Lauren Southern. I highly recommend you watch her video on the subject. It's on her YouTube channel. It has less than 150,000 views and it's over a year old. And I honestly, I think that's tragic because this is a really important video, but you know, YouTube. So, all right, look, because of the revisions to history by the left, several misconceptions have permeated the public consciousness about conflicts between the European colonists and native Indians. We often present the evil white man as the aggressor in any of the early conflicts, and the Native Americans seem always to be depicted as wise and peaceful, living in harmony with nature. But in reality, Jamestown, the first permanent settlement, was intentionally established in an area that was uninhabited by the local Indian tribes, and it was considered by these tribes to be worthless swampland full of mosquitoes. The peaceful English encountered various Indian tribes. Some were friendly, some were hostile. But Jamestown was sporadically attacked by the Indians from its very inception. Now, now historically, this was well known. Every school kid knew about this. The peaceful Christian pilgrims were often attacked by violent Indians. But today, this history has been obscured completely by this revisionism. Was it the Indians that were the aggressors or the English? Well, we don't know. It could have been either. No, 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 no. We do know. It was the Indians. The story of George Casson is probably the most horrific from that time. He was captured, and according to an account by John Smith, this I'm quoting here, when Chief Powhatan would punish any notorious enemy or malefactor, he causeth him to be tied to a tree, and with muscle shell or reeds, the executioner cutteth his joints one after another. They cut off, like, they'd cut off this, and then they cut off that, and they cut off that. They do that with each finger. One after another, ever casting what they cut into the fire. Then doth he proceed with the shells and reeds to case the skin from his head and face. Then do they rip his belly and so burn him with the tree and all. Thus themselves reporting they executed George Casson. So these Indians tortured and executed the Jamestown colonist, this guy, uh, George Casson, by cutting his fingers off bit by bit, throwing the bits of finger into the fire, in front of him, so we could see that they were burning him, like destroying his body in front of him, like, like a sort of psychological torture. And then they tore the skin off of his face while he was still alive before disemboweling him and burning him alive. Okay, so over time, tensions ar arose between the colonists and the various Indian tribes. And eventually, the Indians decided they, they set out to obliterate the white settlers. There was a an Indian chief, an infamous Indian chief, his name was uh, Chief Opakankana, Opakankana, something like that. 
And he he's he was at the time he was known as the king of the Pamunkeys, king of Pamunkey. He's called the Pamunkey was a tribe tribe of the Pamunkey tribe. Anyway, now he ordered an attack on colonists in an attempt to decimate them all. This unprovoked attack resulted in the murder of 400 settlers, a third of the settlers in Virginia. And these are not soldiers, mind you. These are settlers. So men, women, and children. And they also took 20 women captive. And this brutal attack became known as the Indian Massacre of 1622. As I said, primitive cultures were called savage because they were indeed brutally savage. The concept of scalping has been caricatured to the point of being meaningless in the modern consciousness. We associate it with the, pra the practice of taking trophies, basically, right? But think about this for one second. These Indians would cut into the skin at the hairline, tear the skin off the skull of their enemies, sometimes when they were still alive. Sometimes these were women and children. It was a practice of the Comanche Indians to sexually torture the white people they captured and to burn their prisoners, including women, with fire, even burning off parts of their face, as in the once famous case of Matilda Lockhart. But of course, that's not a famous case anymore. Nobody ever talks about Matilda Lockhart. Nobody even knows that story. Nobody knows most of those stories because, you know, historians, they like to gloss over that stuff and write their own histories that they want you to read. And so we don't talk about that stuff anymore. Stories that every school child used to know, nobody knows anymore because these historians want to provoke thought with their iconoclastic ideas, right? They're, they're all being provocative to get attention. And this apparently was practiced even as far back as 1580. And, you know, look, saying that we must return American land back to the Indians, it's exactly the same kind of provocative BS that is just, it's intended to get attention. It's people who want attention. It's pathetic. And it's, it's the kind of thing that losers do. Don't be a loser. Don't be a loser. I was looking into this. I was doing a lot of research on this. And I found some books. There's a book uh, by a guy named Lawrence Keeley called War before civilization, the myth of the peaceful savage. There's another book called uh, Constant Battles, the myth of the peaceful noble savage. This was by Stephen LeBlanc. Now, these guys have attempted to rectify the misperception that permeates society today that the Indians were like these peaceful, good people. But it obviously doesn't work. You know, it didn't work because everybody still has these misconceptions to this day. And I think that part of the problem is that a lot of folks, they want to believe these fantasies. For a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, they reject the European Christian culture. And I'm talking about white people. They, they reject the European Christian culture of their own ancestors. And for those people, this is the most desirable version of history. It's a history that conforms to their belief in the inferiority of traditional Christian European culture in contrast to the more enlightened cultures that emerged in more exotic lands. I once had a roommate who was a Buddhist, and uh, I told him that I was skeptical of white people who practice Buddhism because I considered it not a respectful recognition of a correct spiritual path, their, their respect of Buddhism, but rather a rejection of one's own culture and their own ancestral traditions. And to this guy's credit, he admitted that this was true for him. He just was like, well, yeah, I don't like America. I don't like American culture. I don't like white people. He just didn't like the culture in which he was raised. He rejected everything about white culture and thus was drawn to Buddhism as an exotic alternative to Christianity. He couldn't reject the reality of a spiritual side to his existence, to human nature. He just rejected what he viewed as white people's spiritual beliefs. And I think this kind of thinking is common with leftists. You know, it's not cultural acceptance born of love that they often have, but rather a cultural rejection born out of hate 
The point is that this romanticization of the noble savage and other similar myths will persist no matter how historically inaccurate these myths may be, because there will always be white people who are hateful of their own culture and their own ancestors. And that, in my view, is everything that the left is. The left is a product not of love and acceptance, as they claim, but of hatred. This is why they call themselves progressives. They're always trying to progress past every aspect of the culture our Christian European ancestors developed, no matter how beneficial any aspect of that culture might be. It doesn't matter. It must be changed. We must progress past it because they hate it. This is why the left focuses on ethnic minorities and immigrants and diversity and LGBTQ stuff. It's not because the left is good and loving and accepting and all that. It's because they're hateful and bigoted. And here's the last thing that I have to say about Ben and Jerry's Indian reparation suggestion. First, let me quickly say that the genocide of Indians by Europeans is a total lie. The Indians were not intentionally decimated by the gift of a smallpox infected blanket or anything like that. This is another myth perpetuated by the hateful left. The early American settlers were good Christian people who were peaceful and generous. Many Indians, in contrast, were brutally violent. Some tribes massacred other tribes. Some were cannibals. Some Many mercilessly tortured and killed women and children. The happy hunting grounds of the various so-called peaceful tribes were all taken from other tribes that came, came before. This land was stained red with blood long before Europeans ever landed here. These Indian cultures relied on a conqueror's ethic. That is, the strongest tribe wins. And the strongest tribe, in the end, were the white Europeans. Certainly, we do not ascribe to a conqueror's ethic today, and so such a, an ethic seems barbaric. But... This is not a reason to criticize the Europeans alone, but if it is to be criticized, just about all cultures throughout history should be criticized equally. In the same way that it would be absurd to remove the Saxons from the UK and return England back to the Britons, or to remove black Africans from South Africa and give it back to the Dutch, who were the first to permanently settle in the area, so too would it be absurd to give this land back to the Indians. Ben and Jerry deserve their boycott, and as I said in my tweet, I would love to see them go bankrupt. Their ice cream sucks anyway. Well, that's it for me. And remember, it's not that the liberal friends are ignorant. It's just they know so much that is not so. Good night. That together, with God's help, we can and will resolve the problems which now confront us. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans.